Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest, both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Today, we're going to look at a passage that actually, uh, it's, it's a common phrase comes out of this passage that we still use today very often. In fact, if you study the Bible a lot and you pay attention to cliches and common phrases in our culture, many of the common phrases and cliches we use or, or, or the word pictures we use actually come from the Bible. Today's phrase is this. It's, uh, see the handwriting on the wall? You like it when you hear that one, don't you? Because it means good stuff. No, it doesn't. It means things are going to come to an end. You see the writing on the wall. You know it's going to end. You know it's not good. You know you're going to be fired. You're going to be making a job change. You're going to be dying. You're going to be going down and defeat somehow. It's not one of those phrases we like to hear. But it actually originates from Daniel 5 in this fascinating story about the son of King Nebuchadnezzar who took over for him. And we're going to read kind of an abridged version of it for the sake of time. It goes like this. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which is what the cups and things were made out of. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched as the, hand, the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Funny, isn't it? The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And then he goes on to say he offered all of his wise men riches and great honor and power in his kingdom and if they could interpret it. And it says, then all the king's wise men came in, and, but they could not read the writing and, or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar came, became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom, and he goes on to describe, of great wisdom who your father Nebuchadnezzar trusted greatly because he he was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and also he was also offered the great wealth and the position of number three in the kingdom if he could interpret the vision, the text goes on to say. And then, and then Daniel answered the king, and he said, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Now, let me uh, give you a little bit of a side comment here. Um, many people struggle with the miraculous and prophetic elements of Scripture. And they look for reasons to justify that the writings in Scripture here or elsewhere were uh, only written after the fact so that prophecy then becomes just historical writing at best or at worst it becomes a fictitious history attempt to support a religious myth. 
And, and in this passage that we're talking about of Daniel, he's interpreting, he's going to interpret it in a moment and talk about how King Belshazzar is going to lose his kingdom and he's going to be replaced by a, a man named Darius, a King Darius. And that's actually the center of a controversy with this whole passage and with the book of Daniel among many people. Because archaeology confirms that Darius I, Emperor Darius I, actually reigned a century after the death of Daniel. So how could he be here as well is the question. And therefore, people argue that the text must have been written and actually compiled centuries later, long enough later that they made the mistake and put the wrong name in here. And they also know from archaeology that archaeology bears out the fact that Belshazzar was actually succeeded not by Darius, but by Cyrus as the emperor. And so, uh, therefore, the, the, a lot of people call into question the historicity of this text or the reliability of the text. The problem with that is many of the people who study that, both historians and many theologians, approach the text with this view of scientific rationalism that basically says no miraculous thing could happen and no prophecy could happen and therefore there has to be another explanation and it causes them to sometimes ignore the obvious. Archaeology also shows that Belshazzar was overthrown by uh, the general, uh, a general of Cyrus. Uh, Darius was actually a title, they suspect, from their study of Persian history and, uh, and much like Caesar was a title. So people, when they became Caesar of Rome, their name wasn't that beforehand. And, and history also bears out that this, ba- this, this general who actually conquered Babylon for Cyrus ruled for two years there as a vassal king because Cyrus was off on a campaign, a war campaign elsewhere for two years. And so it's one of those things where if, if you want to look for an explanation for an argument, you can, but archaeology very much bears out the fact that the Darius in this passage is not the same Darius as the emperor of a century later. He was a vassal king who was a general of Cyrus, and that all works out in the text. You see, one of the problems with a lot of times, when, especially with some of the Old Testament and some of the history, is that people start to accept at face value the arguments that undermine the credibility of the text. And it's, uh, it's easy to do, especially when we don't bother to check out the, the, the biases of the historians or the theologians who approach it with the standpoint that the miraculous and the prophetic could never happen, so they look for another explanation. But in this instance, there is solid archaeology, solid history that actually confirms that this is true. In fact, if you really want to look at the Bible and you really want to be honest in the study of it in relation to every other ancient text, the Bible is archaeologically confirmed at a far deeper level than any other ancient text we have today, period. I mean, it's not even close and even the reliability of the transmission of the Bible from when it was originally written today has far more manuscript evidence, 10,000 times more manuscript evidence than many of the other ancient works that we actually trust and we teach in colleges as fact today. You can trust the Bible being historically accurate. And a lot of times when, when there are still questions, it's questions of the fact that, well, this is like 4,000 years ago and we don't actually have surviving evidence that's really conclusive. So, you know, it's, it's why would you doubt just because there's silence? Or sometimes the, 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 the struggle is that the, the names don't match up and what archaeology is finding is the Babylonian names, whereas the Jewish names for the same place were different and they haven't matched the two together. You can trust the text of the Bible 
as being historically accurate, and it is the most archaeologically confirmed to be historically accurate of any ancient text you're ever going to read. So, today, that's, just, that's done with that aside. Today we're focusing on what happens to King Belshazzar. His nobles and, are mocking God, and he, he and them are mocking God in a carefree, sarcastic, kind of hedonistic lifestyle. In the midst of this, this finger of God shows up and writes on the wall. Now, I'm not a horror flick guy. I don't like watching horror flicks at all, but this must have been like one of the best ever. I mean, God should get like the Academy Award for best ever actor and best ever visual effects in a horror movie. I mean, can you imagine this? It's so horrifying that that, that all the blood leaves the king's face and it says it's a knee knocker. His his knees are shaking. He can't stop them, right? And and besides that, everyone in the place is, is, you know, we know they're happy with drink and probably very likely other substances as well that they didn't know were bad for them back then. Uh, But this is not just a chemically induced vision. This is not that at all. The writing is actually on the wall. They can see it. Everyone sees the writing. They know what the words are. It seems like the the first way way they say it, but the second way they say it, it almost gives the indication they know what the words are, but they just don't know what the meaning of them is and how to interpret them. And uh, it's then Belshazzar's wife remembers Daniel. When everybody's frustrated, can't figure out what it means. And she comes in and says, you know, Daniel interpreted for your father, so you might want to bring him in. And and Daniel begins the interpretation in verse 18, and this is what it says. It says, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory, and he was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. We talked about that last week. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. And this gets dicey here. He goes, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven and you have the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see and cannot understand or cannot hear, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Now think about this. Uh, Daniel used to be the second in command under under Belshazzar's father. And when his son came to rule, he's obviously been discarded far enough to the periphery that he's forgotten by his son. He has to be reminded by his wife of who this guy is. That's how far Daniel had gotten knocked out of power. Can you imagine the months and the years that Daniel has been through coming up to this point so that this guy doesn't even know him? And then this is his first major interaction with him. And this is how he has to talk to him. Belshazzar, you're proud. You didn't learn from your dad's mistakes. You're mocking God. You're worshiping dead things and, and, and mocking the one who holds your life in his hands. You're worshiping the, creator, the, the gifts of the creator while ignoring the, the, the creator himself and disdaining him. And isn't it so easy for all of us, myself, for you, for all of us, to, to trade that which we can see and that which we think we can control for God himself? God gives us 
everything. And yet sometimes we live for what he's giving us, whether it's money or experiences or time or, or whatever it is. And, and in a sense, instead of living really for him in that, we tend to inadvertently get in this pattern of mocking him in a sense by placing value on the experience and the things he gives us rather than trusting him, the giver, and using everything we have in life for him. We get focused on our own pleasures and our own wants and, and they drive us and, and we live in a way that leave, leaves little room for God and we have little room to give back to him all too often. And as much as I would like to think that I am immune from that and as much as I would like to think that all of us in this room are immune from that, we're not. I mean, the reality is the, the, the one primary lesson that, of Daniel as we look at him set in history and the lesson we see today in micro uh, by looking just at King Belshazzar is, is this question, how attentive are we to the warnings of God when our life is drifting off track in our faith, in our life? How attentive are we to those warnings? I mean, the Israelites ignored the warnings of their great godly kings and their their priests and their prophets for centuries until God lessened his protection and allowed them to experience the consequences of their sin more fully. And we see in Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belshazzar's father, that he ignored the warnings of God repeatedly throughout Daniel's life, as we see recorded in other parts. But... And he, and he paid the consequences, but then he humbled himself. And, and the amazing thing is Belshazzar, as Daniel points out, knew that. He was there. He saw that. He knew it was all going on. He saw the warnings. He saw his father ignore them. He saw his father humbled, and he saw his father return to God when he humbled himself, and God restored him. And Belshazzar ignores it all. Because like we talked about last week, it is so easy for us to get stuck in our success, in believing we've got it all on our own. In this instance, Daniel is so strong with him because he knows that God's decree is final. There's essentially no room for repentance unless Belshazzar does so on the spot. God is going to act. So we see these funny-sounding, weird words written on the wall. Belshazzar and the wise men, they don't know the meaning. They can't figure out how to interpret them. And Daniel talks about the words and then starts to give the interpretation. Verse 25, the words are, however you say it, meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. Kind of funny words. And here's what the words mean, Daniel goes on to say. And we actually know these words from the ancient language. Many many was actually a word that literally meant numbered. And Daniel says, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. And tekel was a word that actually meant weight. It was very, it was oftentimes not exclusively, but oftentimes used for the weight of a shekel, uh, of a monetary value. Uh, But it also is used for any kind of weight. And it says, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez is this word that means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, this is kind of a a really mini lesson here on understanding how God speaks in in this passage. Mini is actually stated twice. That word is stated twice. And if you look at the way Scripture talks about how God speaks oftentimes, I'm not going to say this is going to be every time, but a lot of times, most of the time, Scripture is pretty evident on this. The first place we see it is Genesis 41, 32, where Moses is talking to Pharaoh and, and trying to interpret an experience Pharaoh had. And he says, because God has said this twice, it means it is firmly established. It's going to happen. There's no going back. God's decided it's not going to change. It's going to happen. And that seems to be a truth in most cases. When God really says something strongly twice, it's going to happen. God's decided it's not something that's going to change. 
Let's look more closely, though, at the warnings and the lessons God gives us in this. So, Mini, your days are numbered. Isn't it easy to forget that our days are numbered? I mean, Chris Hodge is a pastor and author I, I enjoy listening to and, and reading. He says, we are living in the dash between our day of our birth and the day of our death. Isn't that encouraging? It's just a great thought to have. But the psalmists, all throughout the psalms and in worship to God and in their prayer to God, regularly remind themselves, remind the people that our days are short, our time is short. They use things like, we are like a wind passing through. We are like grass growing that one day is green and the next day is withered. And, and, and what this idea speaks to is that anything in life that we think we have a lot of, we tend to squander. And anything we think we have little of, we tend to use wisely. So when you don't have a lot of money, you go through the parking lot, you pick up pennies, you pick up quarters on the ground, right? But if you have a lot, then you stop picking up pennies and quarters. And if you have away a lot, like Bill Gates, you drop a $100 bill and you just keep going because it's not worth your time to stop and pick it up, right? I mean, we know that. And we know if it's a hot summer and we don't have a lot, that we close the door really quickly. We set the thermostat higher. We use more fans, right? And, but if we have a lot, we you know, bring the groceries and we can leave the, we can leave the door open for a while. It doesn't really matter that much. And, and we, when we turn the thermostat down, when we don't have a lot, we drink a whole lot more, a lot more water. When we have a lot, we drink a lot more four-buck Starbucks, you know? I mean, we do, right? And it's interesting. There was a recent study I was reading about 20 and 30-somethings about the trend of, of them not saving as much and not buying homes as fast. And one of the main things they said is a lot of them, a lot of 20 and 30-somethings today are living like they have a lot. They're spending a ton on eating out and spending a ton on expensive drinks, and therefore their finances are not as strong as they could be, and they don't buy things as soon, right? If we have lots of time, lots of time, we tend to waste it. On oftentimes just meaningless, frivolous things, right? But if you're told you have 30 days left to live, something changes, doesn't it? It changes. For most of us, if we have 30 days left to live, we're not probably not going to worry about those dream trips we've had of going to, to Tahiti or, or seeing the castles of Europe. It's not going to be that important. We're just going to want to spend time with the people we love, and we're going to want to make things right with the people we love and we care about during that time, Right? Hebrews 9.27, this, this is a refrigerator verse, okay? You're going to want to memorize this. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Uh, yeah, you're going to all put it on your refrigerator, aren't you? It's a sad thought, but it's true, isn't it? It's true, isn't it? All of us are going to, you know, we, we struggle with thinking we have a lot of time and forget that we, our days are numbered. The second piece of it, tackle. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Isn't it true that we allow ourselves way too easily to live life out of balance with what is really important and really meaningful in our lives? I mean, there's a continual reminder all throughout the Bible that we need to remember our days are fleeting, which was our first point and our second point, that we need to live life meaningfully. We need to live life measured and weighed by what is truly meaningful and lasting. Now, this isn't a message of, okay, let's go out of here and drive ourselves like crazy and, and work really hard and drive ourselves into the ground. Rather, it's a, it's a message of we need to live life measured and weighed by the right things. And that starts with following God, the creator, the one who created us, the one who knows how we're wired to function with a rhythm and who's designed us for purpose and designed us for health and a pace in life and to live empowered by him in that process. 
I mean, think about how the average American, I just I saw this and I thought it would just be a little fun. Think about how the average American lives their life. The average American throughout the course of their lifetime will eat out 14,411 times, including 1,811 trips to McDonald's. The average American will watch TV for 13 years and four months of their life. The average American will wait five years in lines. That's a long line we're waiting in. Some of you can really relate to this next one. You'll spend one year looking for misplaced items. Now, remember, this is an average. Some of you are spending five to ten years of your life looking for your keys, right? Because you're making the average for the rest of everybody, right? We'll attend about 35 weddings and we'll drive 627,000 miles, which is the equivalent of 25 times around the earth. God wants us to be about focusing on the important things. Not that these aren't. These are just kind of fun. But, but it does give the, give the picture of how our life is so engrossed and so focused on so many things that takes so much time. And God wants us to figure out this balance, this healthy rhythm in life that's required that he's created us for so we can have a vibrant life and a vibrant faith. About five weeks, five weeks ago, we finished the series Room to Breathe, in which we were talking about this whole thing of rhythm and margin in life. And so I just want to ask the question, how are you doing in the commitments you made during that series uh, to, to make your life healthier? I know many of you were saying, yeah, I, needed, I need to have more reflection time in my life, so I'm going to figure that one out. Some of you said, I'm going to, I need more sleep, so how are you doing? Are you sleeping more? Or if you're not able to sleep, are you going to a doctor or somebody to help you figure out how you can get more sleep or, or, or reading or learning about how you can have better sleep? Or, or some of you felt like you need to do more exercise. How are we doing on that? I don't know. When I was going through this series, something really hit me hard. I felt like I needed a little more reflection time, but not so much more reflection time. Well, something Joe said when he was up here really impacted me. I had been too caught in my reflection time being focused on problem solving. And Joe, remember, he talked about the message saying, all reflection time starts with gratefulness if it's going to be really healthy. See, I was weighing myself down by starting in the wrong place. So I determined over the last month that I was going to spend more time in gratefulness. And we've been doing that. I've even been forcing the staff to do it kind of artificially in staff meetings every now and then, right? You're right. You're all you're, you're nodding your heads. And, I, you know, I've been up and down and I haven't always followed through with it well, but i got to tell you, even just that little bit, there are some things in life that really drain me emotionally that I don't really look forward to. All of us have those, right? We've all got those things in life that, that drain us. I've, I've been intentionally approaching them with gratefulness before and gratefulness after. And i got to tell you, it's made a huge difference for me in how much those drain me. They hardly drain me at all. And the, the stress level is different, and the sense of God in those moments is so much more powerful just by that simple habit change. How are you doing in your areas where you felt like God was inviting you to change, right? You know, it's so easy when our life gets out of balance, when we get tired, to get caught in this spiral of wanting entertainment and wanting escape. It's really what Belshazzar's party is all about and what his life is all about. He's, he's getting so focused on escaping life and the pressures of life with partying that he ends up defaming godly good things that are holy and right for him and his life. And there are times, aren't there, in our lives when we all think 
you know, I really should spend a little more time in reflection or I really should spend some time exercising or I should really spend some time praying. And we really feel that that's right and we want to do that, but there's this, there's this part of us that there's this overwhelming aversion to that that drives us to say, I just, well, I'm just going to watch another episode. I'm just going to do something else. You know that feeling, right? You know that feeling where you go, I can't face that time with God right now. I just really need you to be about not thinking in this moment. And there are certainly times when that's good, when we just need time where we're not thinking. We all need that. But the problem is when that becomes the staple of our downtime, that's when it becomes a problem. And what ends up actually happening in our own lives, we're not defaming God in a sense by using holy cups and temple things for, for profane things. What we're doing is we're, we're arguing away and profaning God or defaming by God by arguing away healthy and holy habits and not allowing ourselves to engage in those. The next word of the interpretation we're going to learn from is Perez. It's actually the singular form of the word parson, which was read in the text earlier. And it says, which, which is basically saying to us, your kingdom, your life, your relationships will be divided if you do not respond to God and allow him to set your life in order. You'll be divided. You'll be destroyed. You will lose everything. You see, when we ignore God's warnings that he gives to us, and he gives us a lot of warnings, it's saying that destruction happens. The good we pursued, the things we have hoped for, the things we have built that are good will be lost or will be divided from us if we don't get this right. And God gives us many warnings, doesn't he? He speaks to us all the time. He speaks to us through the Bible. He speaks to us through messages on Sundays. He speaks to us through things we listen on podcasts. He speaks to us through songs that we worship with. He speaks to us through friends. He, he speaks to us in our own Bible reading time. And he, he gives us impressions and, and all sorts of things that he's speaking to. And it's, it's so important for us to create space for us to learn to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in our own lives so we recognize those things and respond to them as his warnings as him speaking to us. He speaks to us through his conscience, through the conscience he created in us. And we can, if we pay attention to the conscience, it's our, it's our best friend. But it's so easy for us to choose to ignore our conscience. And over time, if we keep ignoring it, we make it hard and calloused. And then we make it hard and callous because it helps us deal with the discomfort that that brings to us. And we don't like that. He designed our bodies with pain. And pain is for a good purpose to, to tell us of danger and that the fact that we're in an unhealthy situation at the moment. He designed our emotions to give us many of the same warnings. So we need to learn to pay attention to those emotions and live with them instead of trying to avoid them because pain, even painful, difficult emotions that we have are really gifts from God that we need to pay attention to. And if we don't, if we ignore them, we have lots of consequences. And here's, here's at least a couple consequences that we have. When we ignore the warnings God gives us, the risk of sinful choices in our life increase. We want to escape more. We ignore the warning signs of the Holy Spirit. And then we end up finding ourselves more easily tempted to do things or watch things or be about involved, being involved in things that we know are not good or not healthy for us. I mean, most of the pastors, most of the great leaders, for that matter, most of the people I've known who's, who've had major implosions in their life where something negative happened because of sin, because of something in their life, it's been a result of living a life out of balance, of being too tired, not emotionally healthy enough, and therefore they're weakened in temptation. One of the best pastors I ever worked with planted two great churches, fantastic preacher, 
lost everything because he got allowed himself to get out of uh, out of balance and got too tired. He had a one night stand and lost his marriage, lost his church, lost his relationships, lost everything. It was horrible, so painful. The sin, the risk of sinful choices increases when we live life out of balance, and also. When we live life out of balance and, and ignore the warnings, our emotions become less consistent. They become much more inconsistent. So we, we're driving down the road and we find ourselves yelling at people who can't even hear us, right? Or we walk in the house and we yell at the dog. And then afterwards we go, wow, where'd that come from? That's not me. That's not who I am. And we have those feelings and those thoughts. They're warning signs we need to pay attention to. And... When we don't pay attention to the warning signs, we also become less productive. Uh, Sabbath is not just something of coming to church for a few hours and then we go home and work. It's, 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 it's an idea that we take the rest of the day off. We go home, we have a meal. We, we eat the meal around something called a table, not our little comfy couch, you know. And We don't have electronics on. We actually look each other in the eye and we talk and we go play a game. We go for a walk and... We have some time to sit on the swing outside and look at the, look at the beautiful clouds floating by. We just create this space for us in life. And, and the thing of it is, if we don't create that space and we're tired, then it just leaves the door wide open for Satan to come and mess with our identity because he's going to come in and start saying, you know what, I know you're doing this, and when you get out of that escape moment, he's going to say, yeah, but you're not paying attention to your kids well enough. You're not paying attention well enough to your friendships or your, or your marriage, and you're going to feel guilty about that. And then all of a sudden, because you're feeling bad about your identity, you're going to be, you're going to be tempted to go one of two ways. You're going to be tempted to be stuck in inaction, of just doing nothing because you're too tired and you, you honestly don't have the margin to deal with it, right? Or you're going to be t- tempted to just work harder and avoid the feeling because you don't want to face the fact that you feel inadequate at home. And so you're just going to work and you're going to kill yourself. When we ignore the warning signs of life, we also struggle more to hear God. God is speaking to us all the time. The question is, are we listening? So everybody probably enjoyed the Buckeye game yesterday, at least most everybody. There's a few Michigan fans. You enjoyed that game too, right, Michigan fans that are out there? And I, even though my Ducks lost, I enjoyed it as well because it was a good game with a new quarterback against a tough team. So it's fine. We're fine. We'll still be in the national championship. It'll be another Ux, Ux national championship at the end of the season. But think about it. You're at the Buckeyes. Yeah, sorry, I'm leaving Baylor out. Hey, they were behind to Lamar in like the second quarter. That was that was not good, not as bad as Auburn. Anyway, sorry, giving away too much. Let's get back to this. So, you, you if you enjoyed the game yesterday, you probably would have really actually liked it to be an away game because you really wanted to be in Hawaii and go there, right? But if you're in the stadium yesterday with 106,000 screaming fans, you can't hear anything. But if you go to that stadium today where nobody's there and there's no extra noise around, you could probably have a conversation with somebody sitting on the opposite side talking in a fairly normal voice. And the Bible talks about that for us, this habit where it says, Be still, in Psalm 46, and know that I am God. Do you ever create stillness in your life on a regular basis? 
Do you start the day and end the day with stillness? Do you create moments of stillness in the middle of day? Instead of, you know, I'm always tempted to do this just like you. Instead of whenever stillness comes up, I want to check Facebook and I want to check the the sports scores and I want to check the news and I I want to like everybody's... And and we just keep ourselves so busy flipping the TV on or flipping the radio on and and hearing stuff. And, And this... This idea of we need to learn stillness. It's this, it's this, it's not just, it's silence, but it's more than that. It's more than silence. It's, it's being able to have silence and, and find this stillness inside of you with God being there. It's this habit we develop. It's this, it's almost this stillness muscle that we exercise where we allow ourselves to feel the feelings, good or bad. And we face the difficult thoughts with God in those moments of silence and allow him to come and create the stillness inside of us as we encounter him in that moment. So then let's just head towards the close here with talking about, so how then should we live? And there's just going to be quick, three quick applications I think are clearly implied in this text. First is that we need to live life with a sense of anticipation that God is going to show up with purpose today in our lives. Now, some motivational speakers like to talk about this point a different way. They like to talk about it, that we should live life with urgency like it's our last day. And that's a big trumpet we hear, right? That's just not realistic. It doesn't work. Has it ever worked for you? It just makes you feel heavy. It adds too much pressure and it drives us in the wrong place of pushing harder and harder in life. I think anticipation is a much better word. Anticipation of how, is a much better word of how we live in the moment with purpose. Because the fact of the matter is, if you are breathing here today, then you have purpose for God in the moments of your life and the relationship connections you're going to have today. And urgency places the onerous on us to try to work ourselves up. But anticipation puts us in this place, this, this almost excited place of expecting God, of, of following God. It's not us. We get to anticipate him showing up, and it ends up being this exciting place. Psalm 39, the psalmist says it this way. He says, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? And his answer is, my hope is in you, Lord. This anticipation of God showing up, guiding the way we approach life. And second. I think we need to put first things first. And this is, you know, we hear motivational business speakers say this all the time. Time management experts say this all the time. You put the first things first. You put the priority things first. And everything else will fall into order, right? Well, Jesus also said that. He said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So seek first what? Well, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom. In other words, his rule, his leadership in your life. Seek to live life empowered by him for his kingdom purposes. And then also seek his righteousness. To trust his ways are right. To pursue living according to his commands of what God defines as healthy and right and good. Even when we're unconvinced by our culture or by our own beliefs. Is this really right? Is this really good? Is this really too narrow? Is this really too strict? That we are to pursue that and believe that 
and live it even when we're not convinced. And it says he will prove himself. How? He'll prove himself by providing all that you need. You don't have to worry. You can trust him. You can trust him. He'll provide everything you need if you put first things first. Psalm 90 puts it this way. It says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, that we may know how to spend our time on the right thing in the right way that brings the best to life. The final lesson Daniel 5, I think, walks us away with and teaches us today is uh, don't put the decision off. Respond now. King Belshazzar, that very night, Belshazzar was killed and his kingdom was overthrown. And I was actually watching a History, a History Channel documentary a couple of years ago on this, and it was, they were actually talking about how Cyrus's general actually that very night snuck in through the water system to the, to the city of Babylon and, and in a night overthrew the entire empire just with one night. And, it, and it's actually confirming what Daniel's writing here. And Daniel's writing God's perspective of what's going on in that very moment confirmed by history. God is amazingly gracious. He's slower to anger than any of us can comprehend. He's far slower to anger than any of us are toward ourselves or toward anybody else. But there is an end. Jesus will return. We're going to talk more about that next week. Or we'll die before he does. There is an end. The offer of forgiveness and getting things right in our life, there is an end. So we, we go through life so easily thinking we can enjoy life right now and we can do what we want and we can get fully right with God later or get this relationship right or light and right later. So we put off apologies. We, we put off changes we know we need to make. We, we, we even sometimes put off the choice to declare Jesus the leader of our life because we feel like, well, I know when I do that, he's going to require a bunch of changes of me. So I'm going to wait and I'm going to live my life until I figure out how to make those changes and I'm ready to do it. So we put it off, right? Second Corinthians 6 tells us, this. He says, I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. There's this urgency. When you hear God invite you with a warning, don't wait. If God is speaking to you, act on it now. Because the, the, the other truth the Bible teaches us is, is that response to God results in more blessing. And non-response eventually leads us to division, to loss of everything. In fact, that's actually what Jesus is saying in his parable of the talents. He closes off the parable of the talents by saying, to the one who has, to the one who has responded to me, more will be given. To the one who does not have, to the one who did not respond to the purpose and and my warnings and, and my invitation to them, all that that person has will be taken away from them. Now, I know this is a stronger tone and a stronger, more forceful, maybe, invitation than we, than we normally end up with in a message here. But this is the simple reality of the way the Bible speaks. I think we all know it. There's this constant call of God to respond. And this biblical truth of needing to create this habit of continual response, of continual yes in our lives to God. as the ba- And we know that's the basis of growth and change. We know that's the basis of even beginning to understand the mysteries of God. And when we don't respond, we will never understand the mysteries of God and why he says this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is sinful. This is healthy and this is unhealthy. We won't understand that. We'll still question that. that that'll still be a mystery to us. 
But that mystery only goes away when we respond to God. We put first things first. We create a habit of yes and let him prove himself to us. So as we prepare to turn our attention to God through more worship, I want to just ask you just a simple question. If you're here today, and as I've been preaching and speaking, you're thinking, well, yeah, there's, there's been some stuff I feel like God's wanted me to do. Maybe it's the habit you committed to a month ago in our old series that we did, and, and you're saying, I, and I, I didn't follow through with that reflection time. I didn't follow through with getting that sleep in order. Right? Or, or maybe, it's a, maybe it's a conversation you know you need to have that you've been avoiding that God's been saying, you need, to, you need to clean this relationship up. You need to get this right. Whatever it is, if God, if there's something that you this morning are feeling like, yeah, that, that's where I need to go. And I want, you to, I want you to be bold right now, and I want you to just stand up, and we're going to pray a blessing over you in that decision. Let's make an active response to that. If there's a warning, if there's something you know you need to deal with. There's also, if you're here today and, and you have never made that decision to follow Jesus uh, and you've just been putting it off, saying, I, I know he's right, I, I'm, I'm convinced he's right, I'm just not ready to make that decision because I know he's going to ask me to make some changes. I want to challenge you. Respond now. He's warning you. He's speaking to you. He's inviting you. Make the response now. So does anybody want to respond to any of those? Go ahead and stand right now, otherwise we're, gonna, we're just going to continue to pray. Yeah. Yeah. Let's all join them in standing. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to be with us, that your spirit would speak to us, that you'd help our hearts to be sensitive to the warnings of getting off track, that we'd be able to stay in the center of your will, in the center of your path, in the place that you describe as the place that you're going to create smoothness. You're going to create a broad highway for us to walk on. You're going to remove the hills and the valleys, and you're going to make a level plain where our feet will not falter for us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come to each and every one, especially that stood here, stood just a minute ago in the decision they're making and the thing they're responding to you on. Lord, I pray that your spirit would meet them right now in that place. And, and if it's been something that if it's been something that they've avoided because they don't know how to deal with it, Lord, I pray that you'd give them the words and give them the ideas of how they're supposed to face it. Lord, you know sometimes we get so stuck because we feel helpless. We don't know what to do. But Lord, you're the one who says you'll give us the words in the time when we need it. So I pray that you give words. I pray that you give thoughts and give direction. Lord, I pray that you continue to pour your spirit out on all of us, that we would be a people responsive to you empowered by you, and that that power flowing through us would change our community. Lord, we worship you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.